Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, How Long, O Lord? Why the Delay in Divine Intervention? And is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 23rd, 2007. After I'd finished grad school, I moonlighted at a Presbyterian church as a part-time pastor for home visitation. The very first person I visited that July was a widow named Jan. I could barely believe her story as I sat in her living room. Jan had just lost her husband, her two sons, her father, an uncle, and a nephew in a single boating accident on a lake in Minnesota. Six loved ones had perished in a freak storm on their annual fishing trip. As I drove home that night, I thought of the cry of the psalmist in Psalm 79, verse 5, How long, O Lord? The psalmist had had enough. His patience and piety were spent. Why the delay? in divine intervention. The prophets for this week ask the same question in slightly different ways. Doesn't God care that the rich trample the needy, asks Amos in Amos chapter 8 verse 4. Why doesn't he do something? During Israel's national catastrophe, Jeremiah bitterly complained that there was, quote, no balm in Gilead and no physician there. Why is there no healing for the wound of my people? His repeated prayers for divine deliverance ended with a reluctant concession. We read in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20 and 22, The harvest is past, the summer has ended, and we are not saved. A thousand years after the psalmist, John asked the very same question. Banished to the remote island of Patmos for his faith, John pictured Christians who had been slaughtered by the Roman government crying out in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? How long before the emperor and demagogue Domitian met divine justice, that despot who persecuted Jews and Christians, who signed his imperial decrees, God and Lord, and whose coins proclaimed him father of the gods? We have our modern equivalents that provoke these ancient questions. My wife has a second grader in her class whose father was electrocuted while repairing the family television. In her artwork, the child still draws pictures of her dad. At her Bible study, Ellen bluntly described the tragic death of her husband. Tim and I had a car wreck. They brought me home and they took him to the monastery, to the mortuary. Down the street, our neighbor with preschool triplets struggled as a single mom after her husband left her. 
Now she has brain cancer. How long will anguished cries from Darfur meet stony silence? How long will Iraqi civilians suffer so innocently while suicide bombers murder with such impunity? How long, O oh Lord? The question might sound impious with its impatience, doubt, and discouragement, but it echoes through the scriptures nearly a dozen times. The most honest answer to the psalmist's question might also be the least satisfying. We don't know. We don't know why God doesn't intervene more dramatically, more often, and more decisively in human affairs. If God is perfectly good, he would want to do something about all the suffering in the world, wouldn't he? And if he's all-powerful, surely he's able to do something about suffering. Even admitting all that we don't know, which is considerable, and even admitting that God's ways are not our ways, Isaiah 55, verse 8, it still seems like a world with less human suffering and more divine deliverance would be a better world. So, we don't know why the delay in divine intervention. Admitting our ignorance reminds us that we don't have to understand everything or answer every difficult question. In 1 Corinthians 13, 12, Paul said that we often can see through a glass darkly. Some of the suffering we experience is inscrutable, and some of it admits no solution. No matter how much time, money, effort, prayer, or therapy we throw at it. And so St. Augustine advised that sometimes, quote, the secrets of heaven and earth still remain hidden from us, and we must rest patiently in unknowing, end quote. In addition to making peace with our ignorance, the anger of the psalmist encourages us to acknowledge our emotions. Rather than deny, soft pedal, or sugarcoat the hell and heartache we sometimes experience, the psalmist vent their emotions with brutal honesty. And by extension, they invite us to do the same. One entire book of the Bible, for example, is simply called Lamentations. We needn't repress our emotions, silence difficult questions, or adopt a spirituality of artificial optimism, pious platitudes, and superficial cliches, all of which reflect a lack of authenticity and honesty about how we feel about what we experience. The emotional candor of the Psalms has led some people to compare them to mirrors in which we see our own reflection. Athanasius, the bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, called the Psalms a mirror of the soul of everyone who sings them. They enable him to perceive his own emotions and to express them in the words of the Psalms. In its pages you find portrayed man's whole life, the emotion of his soul, and the frames 
of his mind. The Protestant reformer, John Calvin, recommended the Psalms for the same reason. Quote, there is not an emotion of which one may become conscious that is not represented as in a mirror. Or rather, the Holy Spirit has here drawn to the life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. Admitting our ignorance and acknowledging our emotions needn't lead to despair. Sometimes we must wait patiently for the Lord. Psalm 37, verse 1 and 7 and 8. Merely waiting doesn't sound very spiritual or revolutionary, but waiting can work its magic if we let it. A few years after moving to Fuller Seminary, Professor Lou Smeads fell into a deep clinical depression. He says it, quote, made a hash of my relationship with God and pushed me into a dark night of the soul. My experience was, from start to finish, a hellish sense that God had abandoned me. End quote. He was alienated from his colleagues, his family, his own self, and, on top of it all, he felt like a tremendous hypocrite. I didn't know where God was during this time, he writes. I only knew that wherever he was, he wasn't with me. But I was wrong. God was with me because God was in Doris, and Doris was with me. What did she do? She did nothing. Nothing but wait, and wait, and wait. God came back to me on the strength of her power to wait for me. Never before had I known the saving power of waiting. Smeads was honest about his emotions. He acknowledged his ignorance. Then he and his wife, Doris, also waited. And eventually they testified to, quote, how God came back to me at the very moment that I had reached ground zero in my hopelessness. And now for further reflection. What have been your darkest days, and how did you deal with them? What did you learn about yourself and about God from those dark days? Why are we tempted by pious platitudes instead of honesty about our doubts and emotions? Are you surprised at the cries of the psalmists and the prophets? And for further reading, see D.A. Carson, How Long, O Lord, Reflections on Suffering and Evil. And then Lewis Smeads, his autobiography, the title of which, My God and I. For books this week, I, we have a guest book review. The title of the book is There is No Me Without You, One Woman's Odyssey to Rescue Africa's Children 
The author is Melissa Fay Green, Bloomsbury, 2006, 472 pages. This is a guest book review by Christine Keeling Taylor. Christine is a physician in the San Francisco Bay Area who first came to the United States as a high school exchange student from Rhodesia, which is now called Zimbabwe. She's married to an American, Kurt Taylor, and has two teenage daughters. Her family is involved with ongoing ministry to AIDS orphans in Zimbabwe. Melissa Faye Green, There Is No Me Without You. Set in Ethiopia, this remarkable work of journalist and novelist Melissa Faye Green is an extraordinary blend of personal anecdote, historical context, and of socio-political commentary. It tells the heart-rending and totally inspiring story of the life and work of Hergiwon Tafero. As a physician born and raised in Africa, fairly well acquainted with the AIDS crisis and with the political turmoil and constant controversies regarding African-Western relations, I was bowled over by the brilliance, accuracy, and power of this book. The author captures one att one's attention by the deeply touching story of an Ethiopian woman who finds herself reluctantly taking in orphans at the request of her church and, as a result, experiencing profound healing from the devastation of losing her own husband and daughter. As she begins this journey, she is unaware that the most terrible epidemic in human history is, quote, knocking at the scraped metal door of my compound, politely at first, but with persistence, and then it's banging with its fists, end quote. Hergewon's life is both extraordinarily simple and complex, and Green doesn't shy away from the difficult chapters of doubt and false accusations that she faces. And then, in a surprisingly successful way, woven in between the events of this most personal story, Green summarizes for the reader an impecca impeccably researched history of Ethiopia, both religious and political, AIDS, including medical and pathological descriptions which are clear, simple, and accurate, and then the courageous worldwide battle to allow affordable treatment to reach the vast majority of the world's AIDS victims in sub-Saharan Africa. Human beings are not wired to absorb 12 million orphans, she writes. That's the number of AIDS orphans in sub-Saharan Africa at the time she wrote. As she tells the stories of several children whom Hergawan takes in, some of whom are HIV positive, some of whom cannot be saved, and a few of whom end up in the United States, the reader is able to relate so much more to this colossal tragedy. Our hearts are touched in a way that brings deep sorrow and conviction but also encouragement and inspiration. The author, Green, has adopted two Ethiopian children of her own, and she skillfully covers the controversies regarding international adoption and the inevitable questions that arise. 
She includes the moving accounts of several American families and their challenges in raising Ethiopian children, some of whom are deeply wounded as a result of the intense physical and emotional pain that they've endured. This book should be required reading for any Westerner going on a short-term mission trip to Africa, particularly Ethiopia, and anyone considering African adoption. It will equip one with essential background knowledge, but also open one's heart and mind to how God can use committed individuals to bringing healing and hope to some of his most afflicted children. I, I agree with the dust jacket of this book that after you read this tale, the world will never look the same. Melissa Faye Green, There Is No Me Without You, a guest book review by Christine Keeling Taylor. For film this week, I review a film simply called Kurosawa from the year 2001. Toward the end of his life, Akira Kurosawa, who lived from 1910 to 1998, said that he resisted the idea of writing an autobiography because he'd only talk about movies. Take myself, subtract movies, and the result is zero, he said. And so it makes sense that this documentary film about the great Japanese director focuses on his works, and much less on his personal life, or even his ideas about film. Combining narration from his own writings, interviews with Kurosawa and his two children, commentary from friends, colleagues, and actors, and generous cuts from many of the 30 films that he directed, Kurosawa begins with the director's samurai family history, then tracks his early life, his brother's suicide, his own attempted suicide later in life, and then his death. Many people accuse Kurosawa of pessimism, to which he responded, quote, mankind is in a desperate situation. How can we break out of it? Let's think about this. That's all I'm saying." End quote. In 1990, at the age of 88, the film industry honored Kurosawa with an honorary Oscar for lifetime achievement. And when he died in 1998, 35,000 people attended his memorial. This film, Kurosawa, is in English and Japanese with some English subtitles. Kurosawa from the year 2001. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted a poem called Morning Hymn by George MacDonald. George MacDonald lived from 1824 to 1905. Here's his morning hymn. O Lord of life, Thy quickening voice awakes my morning song. In gladsome words I would rejoice that I to thee belong. I see thy light, I feel thy wind. The world, it is thy word. 
Whatever wakes my heart and mind, thy presence is, my Lord. The living soul which I call me doth love and long to know. It is a thought of living thee, nor forth of thee can go. Therefore I choose my highest part, and turn my face to thee. Therefore I stir my inmost heart to worship fervently. Lord, let me live and will this day, keep rising from the dead. Lord, make my spirit good and gay, give me my daily bread. Within my heart, speak, Lord, speak on, my heart alive to keep. Till comes the night, in labor done, in thee I fall asleep. A Morning Hymn by George MacDonald Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 23rd, 2007. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.